You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Good morning. Each week, the point we have uh, made from the video is that you cannot believe everything you see on television. Uh, not when it comes to advertisements, not even sometimes when it comes to someone well-meaning, thinking they're giving you a, a message of truth from the Bible. You can't believe everything that you hear. Now, some of you weren't in here early, and I know some people are, are ADD enough, like me probably, if I was where you are, that if I don't explain to you why I'm barefoot, you're going to sit there the whole time and wonder, why does he not have shoes on? Here's why. We designated today as a, as a day that we've called a, a day without shoes, Sunday without shoes. And the purpose of it is to remind us that there are people across the world that cannot afford shoes and do not have access to shoes. We have a group from our uh, church that's leaving out this coming Friday to go on a uh, mission trip through UTH Ministries to Guatemala. Uh, they will be ministering to some kids and people there that do not have shoes. So what we've asked you to do, if you are so willing, is just to slip your shoes off uh, where you are and let that be a reminder to you that there are people out there that cannot afford shoes. And also to ask you to give at least $20, being representative of, uh, of shoes for someone uh, today. Uh, Brandy will be up here at the end of the service to take cash if you need to give cash. If you're writing a check, you can either make it out to the church or to UTH Ministries. If you make it out to day three, be sure and designate it uh, for the Sunday without shoes, and that way we'll know uh, where to put the funds. Uh, So I wanted to help you to where you could concentrate on what we're going to talk about instead of thinking, why is he without shoes this morning? Uh, And I'll, yeah. I tell you, we're going to talk about some serious stuff this morning. And before we talk about this, and I'm going, to get, I'm going to warn you up front, as I explain some things about crucifixion, very graphic. But the crucifixion was very graphic. And uh, before we go there, well, one, uh, I'm going to be in Romans in a moment, Romans chapter 5 or 6 through 11. If you have a Bible with you, you may want to turn there. Because after I read it on the screen, we're going away from it and doing some word studies and won't have all the verses on the screen, so you'll probably need to follow along in your Bible. Um, But that's going to be our send-off text in just a moment. But, uh, man, just really serious stuff this morning. So let's uh, let's pray before we go any further. Father, um, God, we pray right now that you'd help us to see a full picture of your love for us and that you sent your Son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, help us to to see the great price that He paid. And Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know Christ as Savior, help them by faith this morning to respond to the image of Jesus and Him crucified in their place. Father, those of us that already know Christ as our Savior, as we discuss this topic of salvation and, and the crucifixion today, God, I pray that you help us to be thankful, Lord, that we would even celebrate in our hearts as believers what Christ has done for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Someone may be asking to start with, why are we having the crucifixion today? Because typically you're used to uh, Easter Sunday being the Sunday that we talk about the crucifixion and the resurrection. Today we're talking about the crucifixion this week because I think God has other plans for us on Easter Sunday. And the other plans are this. On Easter Sunday, I want to challenge us to look back to today or to look back to the crucifixion of Christ and ask ourselves in light of what he did, what should we be doing? So that's going to be our focus on Easter Sunday. We're going to talk about the mission of the church in light of what Jesus has done for us. Our question today, and we're doing a a nine-week series that we're almost finished with uh, on doctrine because we need to know what to believe. Instead of just trying to believe every voice or whatever you might hear on television, we need to understand that we ought to base what we believe on what the Word of God has to say. So our question this morning is this, why would God die? And as I ask that question, you understand, I'm not speaking of God the Father. I'm talking about the second person of the triune God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, God's Son. Why would He come and why would He be nailed to a cross? Why would He die on that cross? Him being God's Son. Why would God put Him through that? In a doctrinal way, what we're talking about is this. We're talking about the doctrine of soteriology. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, I use that at work this week. I I just talk about soteriology all the time. Not a typical Caldwell County term, I don't guess, you know, that we talk about. But uh, I want you to know what it means. In that way, if you are somewhere and somebody says soteriology, you can say, hey, I know what that means. Here's what it means, the study of salvation. So what we're talking about today is the doctrine of salvation, what Jesus did for us, why he came to die on the cross for us. And I'm telling you, this topic ought to be of high interest for us because without it, you and I are without any hope. Without understanding why Jesus came and why he did what he did, you and I are hopeless totally to ever be in the presence of God without what Jesus did for us on the cross. Here's our send-off verses. Look at these verses in our Romans. For while we were still weak. Uh, get that just for a moment. Salvation is not about you renovating your life and all of a sudden be spiritually strong. Well, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows, some translations say displays or puts on display or or, uh, demonstrated or commendeth. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, I mean, notice that it's not about you getting your life worked out yourself and then thinking after you straighten yourself out enough, you'll receive Christ as Savior. It's while you're still sinners, I don't have the ability, neither do you, to change yourself. He died for us while we were sinners. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. 
Now, keep your Bible out because I want to go through some words that are in that passage of Scripture that we need to break down a little bit closer as we look at the the Greek language that it was written in. In verse 6, it says, at the right time. And what that really is meaning, it talks about a place or time, a point reached. It also speaks of purpose. What that word is saying is that God had a plan specific time that his son would go to the cross and die for our sins. It wasn't a mistake. It didn't happen haphazardly. God always had it planned. It wasn't like God had plan B because, oh, Adam messed up and I didn't know he was going to mess up. God, all-knowing God, always had plan A of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. And at the appointed time, it happened. It said at the right time. As you continue to look there in, uh, in verse number 6, it said at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And the word in the Greek for means uh, it talks about place or above or for the sake of or instead of or regarding. So what we're told is this, at the right time, Jesus literally died in our place for us and we were ungodly. The word means irreverent. We could not save ourselves. We were not deserving of being in the presence of God. Verse 8, look at some words in verse 8. It said there that God shows his love for us. The word show means to introduce, to exhibit, to stand near, or to constitute. What God was doing when he put his son on the cross. Think about it. He's God. He could have done what he chose to do. He could have sent, you know, let, let's say an archangel or something. He could have worked it out some other way if God wanted to. But God wanted to so convince us and so display his love that he put his son on a cross for us to understand how much he loved us. I mean, let me illustrate that. It would be the difference in this equivalent. It would be the difference between me just selecting one of you and saying, I'm going to put you on a cross to show people how much I love them, or me taking my only son, Jared, and putting Jared on a cross to show somebody how much I love him. You know what? I love you, but guess what? That's my son. And that would display a higher level of love. God sent his son literally to die in our place to exhibit or show to us how much he loved us. And it's the God type of love. In the Greek, it's the agape. It's a benevolent love. It's not a love that we earn. It's not a love that we deserve. If we could deserve it, then it wouldn't be given freely. It's something that we could not earn or own ourselves. God had to decide freely, benevolently that he was going to love us. He showed his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners. The root word means to miss the mark and thus miss also sharing in the prize. All of us, the Bible says all of us have sinned. All of us fall short of God's glorious standard. We all fall short. That's who we are. We're sinners. And it goes on in verse 8. And it said, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about that. Jesus died. God sent his son to die on the cross. Jesus died for people that had rejected God, that had more or less rebelled against God, and more or less spat in God's face. You know how we are by our human nature. Somebody mistreats you like that. Are you getting ready to send your son to die for that person? That gives us a picture of how huge the love of God is. That he sent his son to die once again in our place. Instead of us, he died for us. Look at the next verses. Verse 9 says this. 
It says, since therefore we've been justified by His blood. That phrase, justified by His blood, means this. God, through Jesus shedding His blood on the cross, rendered us innocent. It means God, because of what Jesus did for us, paying for our sins, can look at us, and when by faith we receive Christ as Savior, God looks at us just like we are totally innocent, as though we've never, ever sinned whatsoever in our lives. He said he did that. Look again at the verse. It said that since therefore we've now been justified by his blood. The word by talks about a fixed position, a relation of rest through the shed blood of Jesus. When you have faith in Jesus, you're in a fixed position of being justified. God will always, always look at you just as though you have never sinned. And he said if we're saved... Justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Delivered by Him, He's the channel of the act of God's wrath. We don't talk much about God's wrath in our culture, do we? There's a reason for that. We don't like to think about it. We've almost got to the point that we want God just to be a God of what? Love. But I'm telling you, read the Bible. And you'll see time and time and time again, God is also a God of judgment. He's also a God of wrath. And we can only be saved from that type of punishment, from God's wrath through what Jesus did for us on the cross. Look at verse 10. The word reconciled is there. That means to to change mutually. God sent His Son to die on the cross so that He could change our relationship with Him. And we were enemies, but now we're reconciled. We're brought back into relationship with Him. How? By the channel of the act, talking about the death of His Son. That's how we're brought back into a right relationship with God through the death of His Son, Jesus shedding His blood on the cross. And because of that in verse 11 we ought to be able to rejoice. Life's not always fun, is it? But you know what we ought to remind ourselves? If, in fact, you know Christ is your Savior, no matter how bad it is, we always have a reason to rejoice. No matter what we're going through in our life, we can rejoice, we can boast, we can vaunt, we can glory in what God has done for us. And there when it says rejoice in God, it means we can rejoice in a fixed position. We can have the mindset of where we are always rejoicing no matter what we're facing if we'll keep our focus upon what Jesus did for us. And when we think about that, and I explain the crucifixion a little bit more today, I think you'd realize we ought to always be thankful and rejoice because of what Christ did for us. It happened through Jesus. Once again, He's the channel of the act through whom, talking about Jesus, being the channel of the act, we have the reconciliation. There's an exchange took place. We're restored to divine favor through faith in what Jesus did on the cross. Now, that's just that passage of Scripture. Jesus dying on the cross was a demonstration of God's love for us. If you ever ask yourself, who killed Jesus? I was reading in a, in a, in a doctrinal book, a theological book that's a, that's a current one that I was reading in this past week studying for today's message. And the, the author of the book said that the, the greatest mistake that Satan ever made was to kill Jesus. I X that out of that book real quick. 
Satan did not kill Jesus. The Jews did not kill Jesus. The Romans did not kill Jesus. Jesus willingly offered his life in his blood as payment for our sins. And the Bible tells us Jesus bowed his head and he dismissed his spirit from himself to God the Father. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus willingly laid his life down. But why did he do it? Whose fault is it? Was it the Jews' fault? Was it the Romans' fault? Can I tell you whose fault it is? It's my fault and it's your fault because he died for our sins. That's why Jesus went through this thing called the crucifixion that we're going to talk about today. Our main question is this. Why would the second person of the triune God, why would Jesus Christ come and be nailed to a cross and die on a cross? And I'm going to spend the rest of the time kind of explaining this, but really, he's the only one that could do it and purchase our salvation. I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but the crucifixion of Jesus was not the first crucifixion that happened in history. Neither was the crucifixion of Jesus the last crucifixion that happened in history. But the crucifixion of Jesus is the only crucifixion that ever took place that could pay for my sin and your sin so that through faith in him we could have everlasting life. Here's a little bit of history about some crucifixions that took place. Originally, being crucified was being impaled. And what they would do is take a pole and impale it, drive it through the midsection of a person, and then put it in a hole and leave them there until they died. Sometimes they would just leave them there from then on until they rotted and the birds and the animals had carried away the remains. That type of crucifixion was being used back in in 518 B.C. There's a Persian king by the name of Darius I. He crucified 3,000 Babylonians when he came in and, and took control of Babylonia. In 332 B.C., Alexander the Great crucified 2,000 people he conquered in Tyre. And it was during his reign or his rule that crucifixion transitioned from being impaled on a post to where they were using a cross. What we think of a cross today. In 71 B.C., there's a former gladiator by the name of Spartacus, along with 120,000 prisoners. They lost a battle to the Romans. And the Romans crucified 6,000 men in one day and 120 miles on one of the main highways in Rome. For 120 miles, you could walk and travel and you would see men crucified, 6,000 men for 120 miles. Gruesome scene. But none of those crucifixions change who we are. Jesus may well have seen a crucifixion take place as he was growing up because they used that to execute prisoners. We, we know in 4 AD, the Romans mass crucified 2,000 Jews because of an uprising that happened when Herod died. So maybe there's a little Jesus that's growing up, God in the flesh, who sees a crucifixion take place, and that's where he's headed. Crucifixion was a, a very, very painful death. Have you heard the word excruciating before? How many of you have heard that? Excruciating, you know that word? It literally means from the cross. When you think of excruciating, you think of of terrible pain, and that's what happened when someone was being crucified upon the cross. They would be there 
nailed or tied to a cross, sometimes not nailed, and, and take days for them to die. Most of the time, the death would take place from asphyxiation because they cannot get a breath and they're having to pull themselves up to breathe and to let air out. It was done in a public place out in the heat of the sun with a crowd jeering. It would be the equivalent today if we went to the main entrance of the mall and at the main entrance of the mall, there's someone nailed to a cross and they're bleeding and they're sweating and the crowd is there gazing and screaming at the person dying. That would be the equivalent of it in our culture. That's how public the crucifixion was in that day and time. Historians report that once dead, depending on whether or not any family cared enough to bury the dead, many crucified people were just left on the cross. And the vultures would come and eat the flesh of the body that was there. And the dogs would come and wait and get the flesh and the bones. And historians even wrote down about them carrying the bones away as chew toys to the homes. The very horrifying type of death. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, said it was the most wretched of deaths. On the other side of Jesus' crucifixion, people like Nero crucified Christians. Peter, tradition tells us, was crucified upside down. And the reason it happened, tradition says, is that Peter did not view himself as worthy to die the exact same death of his Savior. So they crucified him upside down. Crucifixion was considered so shameful they rarely would ever crucify a woman. But when they did, they would put the woman face in the cross in order to keep her from having to experience all the humility of seeing the crowd there around her as she died. It's a terrible, terrible type of death. That being said, you want to know what one of the neatest things I think about the cross is? On the other side of Jesus being crucified and us understanding what it means, the church took something that was so horrific and turned it into an object of celebration and joy because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. See, Jesus never touches anything and leaves it the same. Aren't you glad if he's touched your life? I read a story one time about a church that was getting ready to have an Easter play. And this young girl was allowed to kind of decorate the cross. And and just kind of like an older child getting ready to go toward youth. And she decided to put flowers all over the cross and make it really beautiful. One of the powers that be, one of the deacons in the church kind of come up and looked at it and said, that's not the way the cross ought to look. It was really rugged and everything. It didn't look like that. And the young girl said to this deacon, but I thought Jesus never touched anything and left it the way it was. Oh, I love that. And the thing that was so horrific, we celebrate as Christians because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. So with that background about the crucifixion, I want us to ask ourselves a few questions about the crucifixion and learn some more things about what we call the doctrine of salvation. Here's our first question. How can crucifixion be good news? How can the crucifixion of Jesus be good news? In other words, all the horrifying things that I just described, How can it be good news that Jesus went through that? You see, the word gospel itself, that's what it means. The gospel means good news. How how can that be so? 
Well, for us to get a clear understanding of how the crucifixion of Jesus can be good news, first of all, we need to get a really clear picture about how he died. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about the crucifixion. You're probably hoping, I'll just go on. Listen, we need to understand what he did for us and how he suffered for us. We need to pull aside from time to time and look at it straight on and think about it and focus upon what Jesus did instead of it being a fleeting thought in the back of our mind. So today we need to understand how he died, and then we're going to talk about why he died. And through those two things, you're going to understand how the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is good news. To begin with, it seems like just up front, it seems like tragic news, doesn't it? I mean, how Jesus died seems like it's just tragic stuff. Jesus was gathered together with his disciples. And he started talking to them about his death. He gathered them together even for that last meal. And there in that last Lord's Supper meal where they celebrated the Passover together, Jesus is talking about his death. I want to remind you of something. Jesus was in his early 30s, probably around 33, when he was crucified. So him being healthy, having lived the life of a carpenter, and having walked everywhere as he's out doing the ministry, physically, the humanity side of Jesus was probably in pretty good shape. And yet he starts talking about his death. And he gets his disciples together to celebrate the Passover meal that we now call the Lord's Supper. And as Jesus celebrates the Passover meal with his disciples, Jesus, by what he says, breaks 1,500 years of tradition. Because Jesus, at this Passover meal, starts to say things that they've never, ever said at a Passover meal before. At this Passover meal, Jesus starts to say things like this. Take... Eat, this is my body. Now, I'm talking about the Passover lamb back in Egypt. See, the truth of the matter is Jesus is the Passover lamb. But he says, take, eat, this is my body. No one had ever said anything like that before at a Passover meal. Jesus handed them the cup. And he said, take and drink. This, this cup is a New Testament in my blood. And then Jesus told them, as often as you do this, you're doing it not in remembrance of a Passover lamb back in Egypt. Jesus said, as often as you do this, you will do it in remembrance of me, referring to himself. Through that, Jesus breaks a tradition of 1,500 years and starts to talk about himself being that Passover lamb. See, the reason is that Jesus was foreshadowed by all of those lambs. Have you ever noticed when you read about in Exodus, the Passover lamb, it says in the Bible, they sacrificed the Passover lamb singular? Have you ever noticed that? It doesn't say lambs. The reason being, all those lambs that were killed that night in Egypt, they were a forepicture, a shadowing of the fact that Jesus Christ would come. That Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb lamb. Jesus is there at the table and he looks over at Judas and he says, what you're going to do, 
Go ahead and do it quickly. Jesus knew what was in his heart, knew he'd been stealing money, knew that he had made an arrangement with the high priest to sell Jesus over to betray Jesus. So Judas gets up and goes out. Jesus takes the rest of his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he asked them to pray with him. And Jesus is over here praying with so much intense stress in his life that the Bible says he starts to sweat great drops of blood. And he stops from praying and he goes over to check on his disciples and they're asleep. It sounds like Christians still yet today, doesn't it? And he goes back and he prays. And he goes back and he checks them. He goes back and he prays. Then Judah shows up with the soldiers and with priests, and he goes up and he betrays Jesus with a kiss, and they take Jesus that night and put him through a mockery of a trial with false accusations brought against him that none were true. And yet even though he's innocent, they they find him guilty, and they sentence him to death. And they take him and they beat him and they abuse him. They they whip him with a cat of nine tails. And historians tell us the way most of those were built were like this. On the end of some of the leather straps would be some heavy metal balls. And that would tenderize the skin when it would hit the flesh. And on the ends of other parts of the strips of leather, there were either hooks or glass or pieces of metal that were there. So it would dig into the flesh. And on either side of the person to be executed, there'd be an executioner, and they would, in rhythm, take turns beating the body. Historians tell us many people never lived past the scourging to make it to the cross because it was so traumatic when they're beaten. And as it would dig into the flesh and pull away, it would pull away meat and sometimes chindu and sometimes pieces of bone. So Jesus was beaten like that and then given his cross to carry. And on the way toward Golgotha, he fell underneath the weight of the cross. And they made Simon of Serenia pick it up and carry it the rest of the way. They arrived at the destination. They laid Jesus down. And the one who had driven so many nails in his life as a carpenter lays down on the cross. And they drive five to seven inch spikes through his hands and through his feet. And then they raise the cross and drop it into the hole in the ground. And the weight and the thud of his body as it hits and he's there being crucified. In his humanity, he's having to lift himself up to breathe and pull himself down. Lift himself up and pull himself down. And the crowd is there jeering and making fun. And before Jesus dies, the Bible says with a loud voice, Remember, he is God in the flesh. Yes, they had beat him. Yes, they had abused him. But with a loud voice, Jesus screamed out, It is finished. We'll talk about that in just a moment. And the Bible says he bowed his head and he commended his spirit to the Father. I can't do that. Can you? Can you bow your head right now and say, Well, my time, I'm going to die. God, here I come. He could because he was God in the flesh. He bowed his head and he commended himself to God the Father. Nobody killed Jesus. Jesus gave his life willingly. But what's the question we're talking about right now? How can the crucifixion of Jesus be good news? 
I mean, all that we just said, the horror that Jesus went through, how can that be good news? We saw how he died. Now let's talk about why he died. And instead of tragic news, we've got some terrific news. When we understand why Jesus died. Like I said a moment ago, before Jesus died, he screamed out, it is finished. I'm just telling you, this is my favorite word study of anything you can find in the Bible. Because when you look at the Greek word that is used there, tetelestai, it was used in that culture. When someone would go down to the marketplace and you're paying the merchant for something you're buying, when you had paid enough in that culture in that day and time, the merchant would say, tetelestai, that's enough. You've paid all that needs to be paid. When an artist finished a work of art, he would stand back and say, tetelestai, it's finished. When someone would bring an offering to the priest to be offered, the priest would put his hand on it and say, Tetelestai. In other words, this is paying. This is taking care of the sin of this person for this year on the Day of Atonement when they would bring offerings. Other offerings through the year, they used the word Tetelestai. is finished. This is paying for sin. See, all the people in the crowd knew what the word meant. It drove the religious crowd crazy, I think, when Jesus screamed out, it is finished. Because what Jesus meant by that is this. He's saying, I have done everything necessary for all eternity for you to be forgiven of your sins. I have paid the full and final price for the sin of all mankind. That's what Jesus said. I know some people look down on like somebody having a tattoo or you know, especially a pastor having a tattoo, I, I'm sorry. I felt like God told me to do it. If you're reading in your Bible that, you know, where you're reading your Bible, you think it's talking about a tattoo, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about putting cuts in your flesh like you have no hope because of the dead. On this cross about a year and a half ago, I, I just, I, I felt definitely led of God to put the word to the last eye. That means it is finished. I can't tell you how many times in the last year and a half I've had somebody ask me, what does that word mean? And I say, "Uh, let me tell you about it. I'd love to tell you about what this word means. Because it means it is finished, that Jesus paid everything necessary. See, that's why Jesus suffered on the cross is good news. That's why it's terrific news. Let me give you just a snapshot of the gospel here in 1 Corinthians. Verse 3 and 4 of chapter 15, Paul's writing, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance. Get that. What's most important? What he's about to say. In other words, as you read your Bible, you need to read it looking for what is said here because you'll find it all through the Bible. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Now, what makes that passage of Scripture good news? You see, the fact that Jesus died according to the Scriptures, I don't think that's good news, just the fact that Jesus died. The fact that Jesus, according to the Scriptures, took his life back up, that's great news for him, but I don't know that it's good news for me or you. But look what's said here. That Christ died, what? For our sins, according to the Scriptures. And I'm telling you, that makes it great news. 
That makes it the most tremendous news that's ever been said in the history of mankind, in the history of the universe, that Christ died for our sins. That's why I can have hope. That's why you can have hope. We can't save ourselves. We're all sinners. Something had to happen. God took the initiative and he put his son on a cross and his son died for our sins. That's why the crucifixion of Jesus is good news. That's why the crucifixion of Jesus is great news. It's tremendous news. He died for our sins. And that's why it is so great. Jesus' death in doctrinal terms was substitutionary. That means he died in your place. Jesus' death on the cross doctrinally was vicarious. Not did he die, he literally suffered in your place. Jesus' death on the cross is good news in doctrinal terms because it means he accomplished the atonement for us. In another way of looking at the word atonement is to say at one month. We can be made at one with holy God because God, through his son dying on the cross, made it possible for us to be restored to him. He's holy and we're sinners and our only avenue to him is through his son. Question number two. How does God satisfy his holy demands through the cross of Jesus? In, in other words, God, God had a righteous standard. I mean, you, you find it all through the law, all through the Bible. You know, don't do this, do this. So, so God has some demands, some holy demands. How does he satisfy that through the cross of Jesus? In the Old Testament, blood is mentioned at least 362 times. In the New Testament, blood is mentioned around 92 times in the New Testament. Now, let me stop this for a minute because we live in a culture that likes to act all nice and proper. In some churches, especially churches of liberal theology, Want to talk about, oh, that, we don't want to talk about a bloody gospel. You better talk about a bloody gospel. You don't have a gospel if you don't have a bloody gospel. And some of the same ones that don't want to talk about blood in the Bible will go watch a movie with bloodshed all over the place and never think twice about it. Why all through the Bible do we find Blood being shed. I think one reason for it is that it reminds us that sin brings death. I mean, from Adam's sin forward, you have it pictured that sin brings death. It either brings your death or the death of a substitute. Look here in Leviticus. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And God says, I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now, when you look at that in the Hebrew, kind of what he's saying there is that there's an exchange that takes place in a sacrifice. There's a life for a life and blood for blood. So in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, there's blood being shed and a life being given in place of the person that's offering the sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it's a covenant of blood. You see it all through the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it is also a covenant of blood. But the blood is Jesus Christ fulfilling all the sacrificial system once and for all. He shed His blood so that through Him we can have everlasting life. Through His blood, He paid the price for our sins. 
All that intricate sacrificial system all through the Bible, back in Exodus and other places, all of it points to the fact that, that Jesus would come and Jesus would die for our sins. Already mentioned back in Exodus in the Passover, but think about this. Here's the two choices God gave the children of Israel in the Passover. You can humble yourself before me as a sinner. You can take the blood from the lamb that was killed. And you can apply it to your doorpost. And a lot of theologians believe they applied it like this. Which I just made a cross. You can do that and my wrath will pass over you. Or you can fail to humble yourself, fail to listen to me, fail to apply the blood to the doorpost, and my wrath will visit you. That's the two choices that God gave them. And to be honest with you, that's the same choices that we have today. Jesus is the sacrifice of all sacrifices. He's the once and for all total sacrifice for sin. All the other sacrifices were just looking forward to the fact that Jesus would come, giving a foreshadowing of the fact that he would come. And the only two choices we have today are this. We can accept Christ as our Savior, admit that we're sinners, humble ourselves before God, accept Christ as our Savior, and God's wrath pass over us, or we can fail to humble ourselves before God and reject Christ and not apply the blood to our lives, and God's wrath will visit us. Those are the two choices that we have. Jesus is that sacrifice that paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb. John the Baptist pointed at him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can repent of our sin and receive Christ as our Savior and judgment pass over us, or we can reject the sacrifice of Jesus, and God's wrath will visit us in eternal judgment. Hebrews 9.22 says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Old Testament covenant, blood. New Testament covenant, paid forever in the blood of Jesus. He is once and for all fulfilled the sacrifice for our sins as Jesus died on the cross. Now, I'm going to talk about some theological terms just for a moment. Before I do, I want you to see them all kind of tied together in just a few verses of Scripture. Look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, in that passage of Scripture are all these concepts. The first one is propitiation. How many said that at work last week? What does propitiation mean? Basically, it means this. It means when Jesus died on the cross, Jesus appeased God. Jesus fully appeased God. The penalty that we deserve, the judgment that we deserve, Jesus took care of. He expiated our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice. It is the same word that describes the mercy seat. 
And the mercy seat was upon the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go and pour the blood out on the mercy seat. And that blood stood between all the holy, righteous demands of God and men who are sinners. That's who Jesus is for us. Jesus stands between us and holy God. He's our propitiation. He's our mercy seat. And he shed his blood for our sins to appease the holy wrath of God. Second term is this, justification, justification. So then as through one transgression, that's talking about Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act, one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to the life of men. Adam transgressed and all men became sinners and were condemned. Jesus, through the one act that he did on the cross, that one act of righteousness results in the justification of all men. The word justified in the Bible means to render innocent. I mean, God looks at us as sinful as we are, but when we receive Christ as our Savior, God looks at you, and He knows you better than anybody else. But God looks at you. You've never been able to hide any sin from Him. But through Jesus, God looks at you, and God says, you look just like you've never sinned. I don't know about you, that does something for me. (laughs) Because I know I've sinned more times than you'd want to know. There's sins of commission, there's sins of omission. I've sinned by failing to do stuff I should do, so have you. Man, it ought to thrill us that we can be made just like we never sinned because of Jesus. The word justification literally means acquittal. It's like you're on trial and you're set free. You're acquitted. Even though you're guilty, you're acquitted and set free. That's what God does for us through the shed blood of His Son. Look at the next term. Expiation. It's probably one you used last week too. We've already read this first. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. 1 John chapter 3 says, You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there's no sin. That's what expiation means. Jesus came to take away our sin from us. It's pictured in the Old Testament because also on the Day of Atonement, they had what was called a scapegoat. Really, there were two goats. One was killed as a sacrificial offering, and they took the blood from that goat, and they smeared it on the head of the scapegoat. And then the scapegoat was taken out by a priest so far out in the wilderness that it can never find its way back. That's a picture of what Jesus did for us. Jesus took our sins upon himself. He paid for our sins, and he took them so far away they can never, ever find their way back to us to where we are condemned for our sin. He took them away and carried them away. He expiated our sins for us. Next word. Grace or gift righteousness. Romans 3.24 said being justified as a gift. Let me ask you something. If you earned it, is it a gift? If you earned it, it's pay, isn't it? If someone gives you a gift, if it's a true gift, you didn't deserve it, you didn't work for it, they're just trying to show you how much they care. That's what God does through His Son. We are justified. We're made just like we never sinned as a gift. You can't earn it. You can't deserve it. It's a gift by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, please stop and listen for a moment because I am scared to death. There are people that come to church every Sunday that are guilty of what I'm about to say. I'm afraid there are a lot of people who in their mind, they know Jesus died on the cross for them. But instead of admitting that they can do nothing to save themselves, 
that it's all a gift from God, that it's all by God's grace. There are people who are still trying to think, well, yeah, Jesus died for me, but, but it's still about what I can do. If that's your viewpoint, you probably have never been redeemed. You've probably never been saved because you say you can't be saved by works. You're saved completely and totally by the grace of God as a gift. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. God sent His Son as a gift to die on the cross for our sins. So as a gift, we can have everlasting life. Martin Luther said this. He called it the great exchange. In other words, Jesus took our sins and gave us his righteousness. We saw this verse last week. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 21, the Bible says, For our sake he, talking about God the Father, made him, talking about Jesus, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That word righteousness in the Greek is in the passive tense. Here's what that means. That means that you and I did absolutely nothing and cannot do anything whatsoever to make ourselves righteous. He did it all. There's nothing you can do, nothing I can do. It's passive. He did an exchange with us. He took our sin, so by faith in Him, we become the righteousness of God. Word ransom. Got two more words, and then we're going to finish answering our last three questions. Ransom simply means that Jesus paid for us through his shed blood. How did he do that? He, he, first of all, he's our mediator because the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy this, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And he's also our redeemer. And a redeemer is someone that pays the debt for someone who buys someone out of bondage. Titus tells us this. Paul writes to Titus and he says, Our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us or to ransom us or to buy us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Jesus redeemed us. He paid our sin debt. He purchased us to himself. And in response to that, we ought to have the desire to serve him with good deeds. You don't serve him in order to be saved. You serve him because you are saved. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 through 6 says, For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. And one last word before we start answering our other questions, and it's simply the word redemption. The word redemption. It means the act of ransoming him in full. It's used in the Bible interchangeably, talking about Christian salvation. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. How are we redeemed? How are we bought to God through Jesus shedding his blood on the cross? Question number three. How does God redeem us through the cross of Jesus? See, the word translated redemption in our Bibles or redeemed or Redeemer, appears about 150 times in our English translation. Here's what it means. Here's what it gives the picture of. By the way, if you've ever heard it this way, let me give it to you the way a lot of people explain it, because it's wrong. Have you ever heard a pastor say that Jesus redeeming us is like we're on an auction block, 
And Jesus came and paid the person who owned us in slavery in order to set us free. Because you see, in that description, here's what's being said. It gives the image as though Jesus paid Satan so we could be set free. Jesus didn't pay Satan anything. See, that's not a true picture of being redeemed. Moses, go back to the Passover. Moses was sent to redeem the children of Israel. Moses went into Egypt. God performed miracle after miracle after miracle through him until finally Pharaoh's crushed and Moses, as God's redeemer, sent to lead them, leads them free. You see, that's the picture of what redemption is about. See, here's what happened. God the Son entered this world. He went to the cross. He shed his blood on the cross so we can be set free, so we can be redeemed and set free. And as he did so, he crushed the head of the serpent Satan. He didn't pay him anything. He defeated him totally, and we're set free by faith through the shed blood of Jesus. That's what redemption looks like. That's what he did for us. First Peter tells us this, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Ephesians 1 says in him, talking about Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the richness of his grace. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12 tells us this. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The blood of animals can never last. It was all temporary. It all pointed to what Jesus would do. Jesus went and he did it once and for all when he shed his blood. So through faith in him, you and I can be redeemed. That's what redemption means. Now, I'm going to run a side message because I need to. There's a lot of controversy going around in Christianity today, even right within the Southern Baptist Convention, about free will or Arminianism, is the way people refer to it, free will, or Calvinism, and Calvinism talking about predestination and election. Somehow, people have drawn lines in the sand to where they think you have to be totally one or the other. You've heard me say this before if you've been here very long, but listen. I've read my Bible through several times. I have never found the word Arminianism, and I've never found the word Calvinism. What I do find is this. I find the Bible talks about free will, and the Bible does talk about election and predestination. Remember when we started this series about the Trinity, you know, about, the, about doctrine? We talked about the Trinity, how God's revealed in three persons, and I told you you can't do two plus two equals four in your mind and make it work out. It's an object of faith. That's how you have to look at free will and election. The Bible clearly teaches both, and in God's mind, the two do not conflict whatsoever. Somebody described it years ago like this. It's like two rails on a railway. The train goes in the same direction, and the train winds up at the destination. You've got free will taught in the Bible, and you have election taught in the Bible. And somehow people have started getting underneath the banner of one or the other and saying, I'm an Arminius or, or I'm a Calvinist. And honest to God, people, we all be underneath the banner saying, I'm under Jesus Christ. That's the banner that we ought to be waving. I had the chance last Sunday to interview a uh, 
Bible college student that's uh, getting ready to graduate from North Greenville uh, University. It's a Christian university in South Carolina. And had a chance to talk to him, so I'm interviewing. So I wanted to know what his viewpoint was of this stuff because there's a controversy going on about it. And I asked him about, you know, Calvinism. You see, there's a, there's a part of Calvinism. If you go to hyper-Calvinism, it means that God even predestined people to go to hell. They didn't have a chance to be saved. If you go to hyper-Calvinism. So I want to know what this young Bible student believed. And I asked him, and he gave me the best answer I think I've ever heard. Here's what he said. He said, if we base our theology on any one man other than Jesus Christ, we're in doctrinal error. Man, I love that answer. That's a tremendous answer. See, there are people out today in blogs, online and stuff, saying, well, I converted somebody to Calvinism this week. I've never been called to convert anyone to Arminianism or Calvinism either one. I can't even find them in the Bible. I've been called to convert people to Jesus Christ, and that ought to be our focus. Because Jesus redeemed you. Arminianism does not redeem you. Calvinism does not redeem you. Jesus Christ, by shedding his blood on the cross, redeems us. It's foolish to draw lines in the sand. Here's why. The same Paul that wrote about predestination and election. Look what he writes here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I read this verse just a moment ago. Notice this part. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. See, here's the problem. If you draw lines in the sand like people are today in our culture, you're making Scripture disagree with Scripture. I'm just telling you it's something of faith that we have to accept. The Bible talks about free will. The Bible talks about election and predestination. And I think there's no, there's no conflict at all. Here's the issue. We need to understand God's a sovereign God. And he's an all-knowing God, and he knew in eternity past who would be saved and who would not be saved, and we need to understand that God knows that. And that takes away the conflict between that if you just understand God's a sovereign God. Now, two quick questions. Here's the, last, here's, here's the fourth one. Why should the cross of Jesus inspire us in practical ways? Every week, because we're doing a lot of heady doctrinal stuff, I've been wanting to give you something that's practical that you can think of using in your life. So how in the world should the cross of Jesus inspire us in some practical ways? Look at the next slide. The purpose of Christ in the ministry of Christ and the sacrificial death of Christ, what was the ultimate goal? Yes, in order that we might be saved, but what's the ultimate goal? To glorify who? To glorify the Father. And by looking at that example in the life of Jesus, our ultimate goal as believers should be the same thing. My goal and what I do and how I live my life ought to be to glorify the Father. So in a practical way, as you look at how Jesus suffered and what he went through, you need to understand something. When you're going through bad junk in your life, through the midst of it, glorify the Father. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get into this, but I've got a lady over here shaking her head and agreeing with that that's been through all types of terrible cancer and went, you know, back a week or so back and, and they think that some cancer recurred in her shoulder and they're waiting to hear what the doctors are going to do about it. And I've got a lady over here shaking her head saying that's what you do. 
And I'm not trying to put her on a pedestal, but I believe through this, God's been glorified and you've glorified the Father through it. And that ought to be our goal. Our practical approach to life ought to be this. You and I ought to have the goal of glorifying the Father no matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through. Hey, on the other side of the crucifixion was a resurrection. No matter how bad what you're going through might be, you can rise on the other side of it. Look at what's said. Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. That was his goal, to glorify the Father. Look at the next slide. We're called to be like him. Jesus told us we're to take up our cross and follow him. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Quit making your life about you. Make it about God and serve it to Him and follow Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. That's what He's saying. Jesus' goal was to glorify the Father in a practical way. You and I ought to be about glorifying the Father. Well, it might take a little bit of my time, or I'm just so busy. and I'm sorry, but when I look at what Jesus did for us on the cross, that makes me want to vomit for any of us to think we're too busy to do something for Him. In a practical way, we ought to glorify the Father because of what He's done for us. Last question is this. How does the cross of Jesus reveal to us something about God's love? To be honest with you, the question probably ought to be this. Maybe the better question would be, how can the cross not reveal to us God's love? I mean, look at the cross. Look at what He did. Look how He suffered for you and me. How in the world can we ever look at the cross and not see the love of God that He loved us that much to shed His blood on the cross? In Jesus dying on the cross, the love of God for us by Jesus dying on the cross is not just some mushy, sentimental love. It's efficacious love. In other words, it's the power to produce the desired result. Jesus dying on the cross produces the desired result in our lives when by faith, we believe in Him. I'm going to close with reading some verses. Some of you all be really familiar with. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did for us. Romans 5, 8, we read it to begin with when we started the message. But God shows or demonstrates, puts on display His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John chapter 4, 9 through 11. And this is the love of God made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be that propitiation, that appeasement toward holy God for our sins. Our main question today has simply been this. Why would God die? Why would the second part of the Trinity die? Why did Jesus become flesh? Why did Jesus go to that horrendous cross and suffer all the things that we talked about as I described crucifixion to you in the first part of this message. Why would he do that? Here's why. Because he loves us. He loves you and he loves me. And by doing so, he 
purchased salvation. He made a relationship with God in eternity with God possible through faith in Him. That's why He came and died on the cross. Let's pray. Father, God, I pray right, all of us right now are, are, are really standing in amazement for what you've done for us. Lord, I pray right now all of us would be humbled in our hearts that you, that you sent your Son to face all the horrors and pain and suffering of the cross. Lord, for those of us that know Christ as our Savior, for sure, there's no question in our minds that we know Him. Father, I pray that you right now, as we have this closing part of the service, this invitation, this time for a decision, God, I pray all of us that know Christ right now would celebrate in our hearts what you've done for us. Father, the thing that looks so So horrific, the cross is so beautiful when we consider what you've done for us through Jesus. God, help believers right now to sing and to celebrate and to worship because of what you've done. Lord, there may even be believers here in this place this morning that need to come and kneel. And and God, and kneel and just thank you for what you've done. Father, if there's someone here today that does not know Christ as their Savior, God, maybe it's someone that knew, had knowledge about Jesus, but somehow they were still holding on to their own good works, thinking somehow they were earning their way to heaven. God, help them to see right now that's impossible. And the only thing they can do is admit to you they're bankrupt spiritually, and the only hope they have is Jesus. God, we thank you that you will make us just like we've never sinned when we trust in Christ. God, we thank you that you redeemed us out of our sin by shedding his blood on the cross, that he ransomed us from our sin when he shed his blood on the cross. And Father, if there's someone that doesn't know that, don't let them leave today. Give them the faith they need right now just to come and ask, how to be saved, what it means to be saved, what it means to have faith in Christ. For we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So the band plays. If you know Christ as your Savior, don't get too comfortable with that. You know why? Please stand. We don't ever need to take what Jesus did for us on the cross for granted. It should never, ever, ever be old hat to us what Jesus did on the cross. I'm going to tell you a story real quick, and then I'm going to let the band play and, and, and invite you to respond. The first church that I ever pastored, they had considered somebody else as a potential pastor who had preached a trial message before they talked to me. And, and, they, and they didn't vote to call him. And one of the reasons I heard one of the members give is that well, he preached on the crucifixion, and we already know about that. Then I was crazy enough to accept their call and be their pastor for two years before God moved me somewhere else. 
But you know what I thought when I heard that? How dare us ever take commonplace what Jesus did for us on the cross? Like, oh, that's an old message. I've heard it before. You better not ever, ever get over what Jesus has done. So I hope as a believer, if you know him, you'll celebrate. If you don't know for sure that you know him, please come. I promise we'll have someone to spend time with you after the service is over with to show you in the Bible what it says about trusting Christ as Savior. So the band leads us. God leads for you to come. Please come. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at dayfreechurch.com. And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.